0: Welcome to a new episode of EU History Explained, where we try to make sense of today's European Union by looking at its history. In previous episodes, we talked about the initial failure of political and military integration early in the 1950s, but the subsequent success of an economic integration project. This led to the creation of the European Economic Community in 1957, a common market within which people, goods and capital could circulate freely. Today, we're going to talk about how, from this purely economic integration project, we ended up with today's European Union, a complex structure comprising not only a single market, but also common policies as well as rights and obligations for European citizens. From its creation in 1957, the European Economic Community, initially comprising six member states, achieves various important milestones during the 1960s. As two significant examples, the introduction of the Common Agricultural Policy, the oldest EU policy still in operation, establishes an agricultural market of 200 million consumers, following which the Customs Union is completed in 1968, more than a year ahead of schedule. However, the first setbacks are encountered when French President Charles de Gaulle pushes for a Europe based on intergovernmental cooperation between sovereign nations, in an effort to limit the community's supranational powers. De Gaulle disagrees with proposals for two major institutional reforms concerning firstly voting arrangements in the Council of Ministers and secondly the strengthening of budgetary powers for both the European Parliament and the European Commission. In response, he rigelwey is known as the empty chair crisis, during which France boycotts EU institutions' meetings and activities. This crisis is eventually resolved in 1966 with the so-called Luxembourg Compromise, which gives member states a de facto veto power on decisions that are to be taken by majority, should they fear that their national interest could be compromised. Another key topic of debate during this year is the community's democratic character. Although Member States governments have so far been the main actors in the process, having created the community and its institutions by means of an international agreement, nevertheless the European Parliament, which is made up of delegates from the national parliaments, soon starts calling for the direct election of its members and for a strengthening of its powers. The European Parliament is directly elected for the first time by European citizens in 1979. However, at that time it has yet to be granted any legislative powers which remain firmly in the hands of the Council of Ministers. Indeed, it will be many more years before the Parliament will be able to carve out its role as European co-legislator. As the 1960s draw to a close, the European and international political context has also changed. De Gaulle has left power. Tensions between the two blocs seem to be easing, and West Germany is engaged in rapprochement with the East. Against this backdrop in 1969, member states' leaders meet in The Hague to relaunch European integration. The Hague summit has three ambitious priorities. Priority number one is completion of the common market, including the prospect of achieving economic and monetary union. Progress on the latter will be kicked off with a plan envisioning the gradual replacement of existing national currencies with a new common currency. This will continue later with the establishment of a European monetary system based on a fictional common currency, the ECU, and fixed exchange rates between member states' currencies. Priority number two is the deepening of integration through a strengthening of institutions and the launch of foreign policy cooperation. In this respect, the 1970s see the launch of informal cooperation among member states aimed at coordinating their positions on foreign policy matters. Priority number three is enlargement to the United Kingdom, Ireland and Denmark, which will be achieved in 1973. The 1980s are years of great change in European integration. The community welcomes as new members the emerging democracies of Greece, Spain and Portugal, thereby contributing to this country's political stabilisation and economic development. We also see a major treaty reform with the signature of the single European Act in 1986. Among its innovations, this Act strengthens the European Parliament's legislative powers by requiring its assent for the conclusion of enlargement and association agreements, and by introducing the cooperation procedure. In addition, it extends the number of cases where the Council can decide by qualified majority instead of unanimity. It also expands the community's responsibilities to new policy areas such as economic and social cohesion, social policy, the environment and research. The 1990s witnessed a changing international landscape with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fall of communist regimes in Central and Eastern Europe reunification of Germany, and the outbreak of war in Yugoslavia. These developments make it imperative for the European community to become a stronger international actor. That is why the member states, which have already agreed to call an intergovernmental conference on the creation of an economic and monetary union, now decide to convene a second conference on the creation of a political union. These ambitious intergovernmental conferences take place in 1990. The Conference on Monetary Union gathers together Member States Finance Ministers and discusses a plan for the introduction of a European Single Currency, later to be called the Euro. In the Conference on Political Union, key issues at the heart of negotiations include once again the extension of qualified majority voting in the Council, and strengthening of the European Parliament powers, but also the creation of a common foreign policy and defence policy, as well as new cooperation in the areas of asylum and migration and the fight against international crime. These two intergovernmental conferences lead eventually to the signature in 1992 of the Maastricht Treaty establishing the European Union. The union is based on a three-pillar structure. The first pillar is the European Community, with the new name reflecting the fact that its scope is now no longer limited to economic issues. The community gains new responsibilities, for example, in the field of education and culture, consumer protection and health. Moreover, there is now a fully-fledged economic and monetary union. This pillar is based on the so-called community method. The European Commission presents legislative proposals. Depending on the files, the Council takes decisions either by qualified majority or unanimity, and the European Parliament's role in the legislative process ranges from consultation to co-decision. The second pillar is the Common Foreign and Security Policy which will be complemented some years later by a common security and defence policy. Because of the reluctance by some member states to give up their sovereignty in these crucial areas, this pillar is based strictly on intergovernmental cooperation and marked by the European Council and Council of Ministers' dominant roles, coupled with the use of unanimity. The third pillar refers to cooperation in the field of justice and home affairs, including migration and asylum policy, police and judicial cooperation, and the fight against terrorism. Again, because these are highly sensitive areas with regards to national sovereignty, this pillar functions through intergovernmental cooperation. Later, parts of this pillar will be integrated into the community, particularly the so-called Schengen Arrangements of 1985, at the time negotiated outside of the community framework. In 1995, Austria, Finland and Sweden joined the European Union, bringing the total number of member states to 15. The Economic and Monetary Union entered its final stage in 1999 with euro coins and banknotes officially starting to circulate in 2002. In the second part of the 1990s, there emerges a need to reform the EU institutional framework in order to cope not just with its expanded scope of action, but also its successive enlargements. It is against this backdrop that a convention is convened in 2002 charged with the task of drafting a constitution for Europe. This ultimately culminates in 2004 when the treaty establishing a constitution for Europe is signed. However, failure lies ahead and ratification will be blocked by two national referendums in France and the Netherlands, which will lead to the project being abandoned. At the same time, between 2004 and 2007, the EU launches its biggest enlargement to date, welcoming two new members from Southern Europe along with 10 from Central and Eastern Europe, thereby making enlargement a powerful tool to ensure the continent's stability. Following the constitution's failure, European integration will be relaunched with the Lisbon Treaty, which is still in force today. Largely based on the substance of the Constitution, this treaty abolishes the former Pillar Division. However, foreign policy and justice and home affairs remain separate from the EU's other policies, being subject to intergovernmental decision-making methods. The treaty strengthens the European Parliament's role, making co-decision the ordinary legislative procedure. It formalises the European Council's role as an EU institution and equips it with a permanent president. Lastly, it creates the post of a High Representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, who besides conducting the Union's foreign policy is also the Vice President of the Commission and the Chair of the Council formation gathering the foreign affairs ministers. Since the latest treaty reform, the EU has gained a new member, Croatia, and lost one, the UK. Today's European Union is a polity which, among other things, allows us to circulate freely across member states, to live and work abroad, to participate in local and European elections in other countries, and to feel part of one big family with our fellow Europeans. But it is also an ongoing process that cannot yet be considered achieved. As the treaties say, the EU is permanently striving to build an ever closer union among the peoples of Europe. And even today, a broad debate is taking place about the future of the EU and the reforms needed to make it more effective and closer to citizens, including young people. Thank you for watching and stay tuned on TEPSA's channel for more videos about the European Union and its functioning. This podcast is co-funded by the Europe for Citizens program. of the The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents, which reflects the views only of the authors, and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.